Hey everyone, great news. Kitchen Table Magic is now on Hipsters of the Coast. They're the mages with the curly beards and the vegan potion options. Hipsters of the Coast is the premier news and strategy blog for the Magic the Gathering community. They have a unique perspective on things, and Kitchen Table Magic is honored to be joining their lineup. If you're listening to me right now from Hipsters of the Coast, I'm pleased to meet you. You're going to love all of the guests I have lined up for Season 3. And be sure to check out past episodes at kitchentablemagic.org. If you're new to the Hot Sea blog, head on over to hipstersofthecoast.com to get strategy and content for all of your favorite formats. Hey everyone, Kitchen Table Magic is brought to you by Card Kingdom. Are you looking for a modern, legacy, commander, or standard staple? Well, Card Kingdom has it in stock. Pre-order Ixalan now and get your singles when the new set drops. Support Kitchen Table Magic and use our affiliate link, cardkingdom.com KTM, when you shop. Hey everyone, Kitchen Table Magic is brought to you by Paragon City Games. They're a community-focused game store in Draper, Utah that cares deeply about their player base. They invite you to join their in-store stream at twitch.tv slash paragoncitygames for weekly legacy and modern events. Welcome to Kitchen Table Magic, a storytelling podcast featuring the amazing people of the Magic the Gathering community. I'm your host, Sam Tang. Join me and my guests as we share stories about what MTG means to us, how we got started playing Magic, the ups, the downs, the hilarious stories, and everything in between. In this episode, I'm talking to Dan Burdick, the lead of Play Design, a new division of R&D for Magic the Gathering. While Mark Rosewater is trying to break the game, Dan and his crazy team of wizards is making sure Magic stays functional and playable. Dan considers all the cards available in the game of Magic to make up a physics engine that governs the MTG universe. He uses this unique way of thinking to balance the play environment for players. Dan has a motley crew of spell-slinging professionals to help him make sure Kitty Combo doesn't happen again. Melissa Detora, Paul Cheon, Andrew Brown, Ian Duke, Brian Hawley, Adam Prosak, and Andrew Veen are the members of the new play design team. Stick around to the end and you can find out how to get a special signed card from Dan Burdick himself. I hope you enjoy my interview with Dan Burdick. Hi everyone, thanks for joining me on Kitchen Table Magic. I'm your host, and today I'm with the head of the play design team at Wizards of the Coast, Dan Burdick. Dan, how are you? Hey, I'm well. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for having me. That's the most important thing. Let's jump right in. Can you give us a little bit of background about yourself? Like, where did you grow up and how did you find magic? Uh, I grew up in Kansas City, Missouri. So, I was at a Comic-Con in Kansas City and someone introduced me to magic. I immediately took it home and showed my brother, Matt Place, a former magic designer. And he was incredibly excited about it. I described it as D&D mixed with cards. And uh, it was the best summer of our lives. And we continued to be super excited about it for the next 23 years. And the million dollar question that everyone in the magic community is excited about is, what is play design? What does it do? Who are you all? And you are the head of play design. So, how did you join the play design team? So, uh, I was approached by Ken Troop, um, who was one of the co-directors of R&D along with Aaron Forsyth, about this new position. Uh, they were looking for somebody to manage the team. Um, the team was already coalescing around a lot of the R&D members that had previously been in development and been the major participants in FFL, the Future Future League. So, they realized the need to formalize the playtesting process and um, really work on format development um, rather than just having it be everybody's job. 
who works on set teams and realized to do that, they would need uh, someone actually in charge of, of developing it and turning it into a real division. I was recommended by a couple people who knew me from uh, the game design field, uh, came out and everything happened really quickly. I think I was, might've been the first person they interviewed. Really? Yeah. And uh, we had such an amazing rapport and clearly we were on the same page in terms of uh, what we felt that Magic was capable of and, you know, what it had achieved in the past, but then sometimes oscillated depending on, you know, the year or the resources that were devoted to things like playtesting. Uh, I had only recently gotten into management and I had a style that clearly resonated with Ken and the rest of the team. So it was kind of a perfect storm of all good things that ended up with me leading play design. And who is on the play design team? So play design is composed of Ian Duke, um, who is acting as our technical lead. Ian is a veteran of R&D who has led sets. His game design acumen is fantastic. He's a spectacular leader, really good at leading the meetings and coming away with the deliverables that are play design's mandate. Also, Adam Prosak, Brian Hawley, Andrew Brown, Melissa DeTora. And we've recently hired Michael Majors as a contractor. Mm, wow. Yeah. So often cited as one of, if not the best deck builder in the world by his peers. And so really exciting to have him on board uh, as a contractor. And then we've hired Paul Chion full-time starting as of yesterday. Wow. So I just left a meeting with Paul to, to join this interview with you. Wow. <laughs> that's amazing. So Homf is here in the building. Right. That's amazing. Okay. So why these people? I mean, what do you think about this team collectively or individually makes this group of people qualify for play design as opposed to someone like John Finkel or LSV or Patrick Chapin or Reed, Owen, and Huey? Well, I think all the people that you just mentioned would be fantastic members of play design. Our recruitment efforts have really gone wide where we're speaking to everybody we can, if for no other reason to inform them of the going-ons and forge a relationship. Like we've always wanted to have fantastic relationships with pros and continue to engender that through attending events and communicating. But that said, any of those people would make fantastic members of play design. And I see no reason why a couple of those people after they leave their playing career that we couldn't see a way to have them on the team. Very cool. That's my subtle way of saying that I've, I've reached out to those, some of those people already. <laughs> okay, that's wonderful. <laughs> and what does a normal day in play design look like? There's a significant amount of brewing decks starting in the morning. Another one of our contractors, Pete Ingram, um, in the play design panel that we had in Grand Prix Las Vegas talked about how uh, his day starts in the shower when he starts building a deck in his head. Wow. <laughs> so, wake up in the morning, think about, you know, what would be uh, the most interesting thing to explore today? You know, what would be the most broken or how did these two archetypes interact or test the limits of this new card? All those types of considerations, uh, that's how he starts his day. And then in the morning, putting that deck together, grabbing a playtest partner and starting to battle. And then uh, we have multiple meetings throughout the week where we vet the results of all this playtesting, then talk about process, philosophy. Play design's most significant role is as a resource to others. As people create content, how can we determine what the best, best paths forward are for that content to um, serve the needs of whatever that product is? Uh, most relevantly, standard and major sets. But yeah, to, to circle back to what exactly the day is like, um, a lot of battling, a lot of discussion, planning to figure out what the next steps are. 
Fascinating. And Mark Rosewater said on Blogatog that play design is about the health of tournament environments. Could you give us a context of why that need arose? So that need has always been there, and that responsibility has always been shared by a lot of different members of R and D. Some more play minded than others. Um, Rosewater himself, of course, is more of a, a visionary and thought leader, whereas some people have always been more, you know, what is the end product? Um, how does this play? Uh, how does this affect the health of tournament magic? Mm-hmm. So that need has always been there. It's been a shared responsibility, but it always hasn't had a clear leader or a clear process to determine what the deliverable is in terms of what is a healthy format. Are all players being served at all levels? And so now we've just formalized the process by which we measure the success of delivering healthy formats. Yeah, totally. I totally hear that. I think that was indicated before in an article that you wrote that the purpose of the team is to make sure that standard and limited are healthy. But because of all the new cards that are being printed, the community is very concerned about how that'll affect modern, legacy, as well as like EDH and Commander. Do you have any plans to also make sure that the play design also tests for those other formats? So those formats are always kept in mind. Sometimes there are designs that are specifically intended for them. Um, in particular, commander products often serve commander. But certainly we consider whether a card would be too good in modern or even if it would be a fantastic addition to modern. So all those are considered. But from a resource standpoint, it's be simply too hard to test, okay, what is the legacy environment now that um, you know we've added you know these three cards that could become legacy staples? Because those formats naturally have in built-in safety levers. They're high power in general. As long as we can keep the truly broken things out of the formats, they will tend to adapt in really healthy ways, whereas standard doesn't necessarily always have those tools. Making sure that standard is robust is a more challenging task that uses a significant amount of our resources and our time. But certainly our eyes are always on, will this be healthy for older formats? Got it, got it. You know, one of the key questions that also gets asked is, what is the problem that play design is trying to solve? Is it a ban-free in standard environment? Is it creating balance while maintaining fun? Uh, yeah, the all three things that you just mentioned are absolutely our mandate. How do we create a, a format that is not only balanced, but also has a lot of really fun, interesting things to do? I mentioned in the article, um, you can have balance without fun, but you can't have fun without balance. Mm-hmm. What I meant by that is that you can put all kinds of really cool stuff and, and games throughout history where people were able to identify this is a really neat thing to do, but weren't necessarily able to balance it such that once once the game hit the real world, uh, the players didn't figure out something, you know, exploits or, or something that um, made the game play not in the way the designers intended. Then you can just end up having designed 80 things to do, but there's really only two. Yeah. um, Which is the tragedy of a lot of game design. Mm -hmm. Um, So, our philosophy is that we have to find that balance and we have to be good enough at power level and have the right process and philosophy and game balance minded team members and enough time simply to play test um, to be able to uh, find the balance while simultaneously finding, promoting the things that are really fun while reining in some of the things that, you know, once they reach a certain power level, um, aren't very fun, for example. You know, combos are, are an off-sided uh, example of that in that it's really fun to do an infinite combo, but if it's too easy, then that becomes unfun. In the context of the play design team and its goals, how would you define balance? Like, when would you determine something is too pushed? I think that what you're asking um, 
is there's the strict definition of balance, which is that all these pieces interact in ways where you end up, you know, that they feel even and fair. But then there's also the question of what is the right rate for various tools that a player can use that makes it fun for everybody involved without one side feeling too oppressive or feeling too weak. A lot of various types of effects in magic have waxed and waned in our philosophy of where they should land, at least in, in a given format. Um, counterspells, card draw, um, creature removal, um, creatures themselves, creature stats um, have, have all taken dramatic shifts over the years. That question about balance really comes down to philosophy. What do we think is the most fun way for these cards to interact? And what are the rates that we should put them at so that those interactions happen in dynamic, interesting ways, but ones that, you know, feel balanced and have some give and take in terms of what we push in what formats, depending on the needs of a particular set, theme, or um, just right now standard should feel a little faster, or it should feel a little slower, it should be a little more about big creatures. You know, whenever you have a theme like Eldrazi and Dragons, those types of things tend to require that cards be at certain rates. You wouldn't want to make um, terminate, you know, something that kills a huge guy uh, at a fantastic rate in a set where you're also trying to push six cost dragons that don't necessarily all have come into play abilities, for example. Yeah, I totally understand that. Dan, how would you help the team as well as R&D evaluate success in a format? That's a great question. I think that the number one way that you evaluate success is are people having fun? And then um, how do you gather that information? Like that, that is the metric, but then how do you gather the data to, you know, support whether or not that's happening? So, um, we have a great BI team that, um, collects a lot of different data. And one of the questions in front of us is what is the data that we need to determine you know, are people enjoying this? Are people having fun? Is this the type of thing that is sustainably fun? Do I want to do this, um, you know, the 30th time instead of just the first four times? And BI, you say you mean like business intelligence? Right. Okay. And then how would you be able to collect data on that? So we can get results from Magic Online, and then we're in the process of getting results from live tournaments as well. We have some resources for live tournaments. And then, um, of course, there's sales data and, um, you know, various trends. What, how our products are doing, uh, you know, and among who uh, they're doing the best with. And then, um, of course, we have uh, lots of surveys and various ways of interacting with people. But one of the things that I find personally to be the most valuable is to just go to an event, go to a pre-release, go somewhere where you're really interacting with people outside of your circle and speak with them and ask them, you know, what are you enjoying? You know, what are you finding fun? To try to get a more holistic sense of, um, is this serving all different types of players? Are, are people inspired by this? Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what came to mind when you were saying just to go to the event and really talk to people. That was the word holistic. It really came to mind. Does some of this data gathering and business intelligence, did that factor into the recent decision about limiting the amount of information about 5.0 deck list being published from Magic Online? I can't speak to that specific decision, but I do believe that it's important that the information that we share with everybody is inspiring and makes you want to go do new fun things. Not everything that we communicate about what's happening in Magic needs to just be raw data for players to to crunch and 
or for anything coming from us to be like, here's what's actually going on in the world of magic. The, the purpose of um, everything that we you know put out on the websites or uh, release publicly should be, here's a whole bunch of really cool stuff about this cool game that you love. You know, that, that's what will serve people. Um, of course, there's people who are really into data, you know, into raw data and, and trying to extrapolate w- what that means exactly. But that's not the common audience for, you know, all of our media and content. The audience is, here's, here are the happenings in magic right now. Is any of this cool to you? If yes, here's more. You know? <laughs> and, then, and then figuring out what, what people are inspired by. Yeah, you said in your article that you wrote, quote, a metagame that hasn't been played isn't solvable because there's no way to predict which of the many paths the real world will start with and what events will trigger the next evolution of the format, you know, end quote. And you were talking about, you know, you know, someone's going to go to a tournament and make a significant result with that deck. And that's really going to shift the way the players look at the game. And what you were saying earlier, I thought was very refreshing. I haven't heard this often is, this, you know, you said Wizards is not there to give all of the information about it. We just want to highlight what people are doing. Doing. Right. Yeah. The, I'm not part of the media and marketing team, so I, I don't I don't try to speak for them mm. um, specifically. But certainly, the content that we're trying to create is supposed to be about the fun game of Magic, not about the you know math problem of metagames, for example, or mm. or you know like are things fundamentally broken? You know that <laughs> like it's it's less about restricting narratives and more about what type of information is really interesting to read about for the majority of our audience because we can we can only release so much stuff. You know, yeah. There's there are only so many things that can be part of our, you know, media strategy. Yeah, I understand that. You know, one thing about play design that has really excited the magic community is that it's just a new team that's being introduced that allows the community to look inside of R&D. And we know that R&D is a combination of design and development. Could you tell us a little bit about how play design fits into design and development? Absolutely. So, the set design process starts even much earlier than that. The world building team gets involved and plans the story arcs. And then um, there's multiple exploratory teams that that are working on the themes and, you know, what the sets are going to feel like, you know, emotionally or story-wise. So, we start to get involved even from that point. Like, one of the things that we might try to avoid, for example, is doing Eldrazi and Dragons back-to-back. You know, there are going to be some mechanical challenges uh, by having multiple years in a row that revolve around huge guys. So, that's the type of feedback that we might give early on. Um, Though, we're not there to restrict ideas usually. We're mostly there to provide guidance and think through, okay, what will, what will this play like ultimately? What, what are some of the ways in which um, these ideas that are being germinated um, could eventually play out in terms of formats or sets or uh, limited environments? So, how many sets ahead does play design work? Depends on your definition. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, because there's the sets that are in FFL. Mm-hmm. And the FFL is the Future Future League. Future Future League. Okay. So, every set that will be legal at any given time from when a set is late enough in set design that it gets uh, handed off to the FFL to start playing series constructed with, those sets are being worked on as an active playtest mm-hmm. with an active playtesting component. Um, for constructed. And then, but before that point, um, for example, a set that is very early on and still deciding on some mechanics, uh, there will be a play designer on that set team brewing up some playtest decks to kind of vet the uh, the fun and, and viability of a of a mechanic. So we're touching every step of the way with the goal of 
getting things ready for play as early as possible and really helping set leads to get their sets you know, more and more in shape and more towards constructive viability early on in the process so that it isn't just a late handoff mm. to FFL with, you know, a matter of months to figure out how the, we can balance all the cards in such a way that they'll be fun in environments. So, so, so the word that we touched on earlier, holistic, is, is a big driver for this process. So you really are potentially that third F of the future, future, future league. Right. Okay. Yeah. How many Fs can we add to future, future league? I, a lot before, it, you know, w- wouldn't make any sense. Got it. Got it. Okay. Okay. So one thing that a lot of the Magic community is very excited about is to ask, what would be the first set that Play to Dine team would have an active role in? So we've been active in uh, several sets, you know, some, some of which are uh, already starting to come out. But the first one that you could declaratively slay say the play design team was formed and we were there from the beginning uh, would be Milk. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that's the code set name Milk. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right. So <laughs> That's it, all the information I have for you. Sure. <laughs> what were the sets before it? I can't remember the order of the code names. Um, so it goes ham, eggs, soup, salad, spaghetti, meatballs, milk. Just like the, a natural nine-course dinner. Wow. Seven-course dinner. Milk yeah. and then cookies. So Milk and then – oh, yes. So you're quite a ways off. Right. Like yes. so into the future. That is a normal gourmet eight-course meal. My goodness. <laughs> so never mind about the third F. We could probably add a fourth or a fifth F. Like you're very far into the future here. Right. Wow. So looking at – those code names and the recent revisions to the release schedule, that seems like it's about two years out. Uh, yes, something like that. Okay. You'll have ham and eggs is Ixalan and Rivals of Ixalan. Soup salad is Dominaria Corn 2019. And we haven't announced spaghetti and meatballs mm-hmm. is, and of course, haven't announced uh, Milk's theme or world that it lives in, um, but something like um, early 2019. Okay, that's really cool. Dan, also in your introductory article to the play design team, you said that the scope of possibilities and what play design aims to do is incredibly vast. And so you also coined the term the finite universe. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. So one of the things that makes magic, in my opinion, the greatest game ever made is that it feels like you can literally do anything. The number of combinations and the ways in which you can break the rules or take what is presented as the physics engine of the game and turn it on its head to do things that no one has thought of before or certainly that the creator that Richard back in 1992 didn't imagine that people would be doing these insane combos or you know even some of the more simple interactions they they feel infinite um and in, in many ways they are the number of combinations of ways in which decks can interplay and play out you know is equal to the atoms in the universe perhaps you know some there 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 are many uh, i think like one of the there there's a math open math question of what is the largest number that is actually useful in the real world. Hmm. And one of the contenders, I believe, is there are precursor golem combos that utilize a number that is something like, you know, close to the number of atoms in the universe. And that has a pseudo real world application in that um, you can do that and get that many precursor golems, you know, if it wouldn't just crash magically (laughs) when you tried. Interesting. Um, So... I think that's kind of illustrative of how exciting it is to have a game where it feels like there are any number of combinations. So the idea of the finite universe is to take that seemingly limitless physics engine and 
constrain it by, you know, saying, okay, the, the outer limits of some of these things that you could do uh, aren't appropriate for this particular format. So we'll put in some safeguards to make sure that, you know, we have things like gravity and we don't just fly off into space, you know. Interesting. So you touch on this concept of safeguards in this physics engine of the finite universe. What kind of safeguards and safety measures are the play design team kind of putting together and putting into place? So one of the goals is that anything that you can do that is really cool and powerful, if somebody tries hard enough, they can find a commensurate counter strategy uh, that will, you know, have have a reasonable win rate against you. One of the disaster scenarios, if there's, is if there's something incredibly powerful and you search high and low, and none of the things that are supposedly good against it are actually can actually get you a win rate over 50%, even if you go all in on opposing that strategy. So that's kind of the yin and yang that we're looking for, where there is nothing you can do that there can't be some type of metagame shift where things could become hostile to you. Interesting. You know, and the recent controversy in the magic community has really been over the bannings in standard, especially with Felidar Guardian. And, you know, it's not it's not the banning itself. Um, it's a combination of factors. It's it's the fact that it was banned. It was the fact that somehow R&D allowed the cat to be in the set with Sahili Rai. It was uh, also maybe how long it took for it to be banned. It also, you know, it, there's a, lots and lots and lots of reasons that kind of culminate into the kind of this feeling that the community has about standard. You know, Felidar Guardian was banned on April 27th, and then Mark Rosewater announced the play design team on May 17th. And so kind of on a scale of one to Chernobyl, how emergency was it for the R&D team to say, we really need this play design team? The conception of the play design team actually happened before a lot of the bannings and um, some of the challenges that we've paced, faced in the past year. Mm-hmm. Um, Ken Troop, uh, my boss, and other uh, stakeholders within R&D and the company realized that playtesting is crucial. Um, it being, you know, one of the things that ends up falling off whenever you get busy with a lot of other responsibilities is uh, the type of thing that needs to be course corrected. And we need to make sure that we have scaffolding in place to ensure that, you know, playtesting and the health of formats is is always respected um, and that there's no chance that, you know, it hits a low point that could get into that type of, you know, okay, we're in the red right now. We've, we've shipped a set without uh, sufficiently vetting a lot of these things that we're trying to do. So there was already awareness um, around that. And the timing is, while not coincidental, really just emblematic of the fact that, you know, we realize that we're always taking risks and that investing in protecting against those risks while also investing in making the game as fun as possible. Because it's not just about stopping Felidar Guardians. It's also about, you know, making sure that the things that there are to do are super fun and interesting. Right. And, and you know, the community up until this point is very concerned with how R&D shares information publicly. There was a question that was asked from the community is that would play design ever consider creating like a Tumblr blog, just like Mark Rosewater has for the community to directly interact with play design? Uh, that's a really interesting question. Um, so right away, we've hired 
some people who have player-facing personas, you know, Paul Chian being certainly one of the more beloved members of the community. The idea that Paul Chian would, you, you know, you wouldn't be able to interact with Paul Chian um, anymore because now he's his wizards, you know. Of course, what we actually have to do is figure out what the strategy is um, for players like Chian and, you know, making ourselves available. Like, you know, I am in this interview and and how we're uh, showing up at a lot of events and and really wanting to interact and field questions and, and discuss magic with players. Um, that That is our plan moving forward. Um, what Form that takes uh, is definitely TBD, but uh, we're really excited about having having a team that is involved in the community. Yeah, hiring Paul Chian and of course converting Melissa Detora to a full time employee and having her take over the play design column, um, of which we're all participating and planning on uh, showing off some of our personalities and making ourselves more accessible through that column and potentially in other ways in the future is definitely on our plate. Yeah, Melissa's a really exciting person to have on the team. She's starting to do some more coverage. She'll be at uh, Grand P Minneapolis. Uh, Paul Chian will be taking Ian Duke's place at um, the Pro Tour in Kyoto. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So, Ian's taking a little bit of, bit of a break to um, be the technical lead for play design. So, there's a lot of opportunities in that space. That's very cool. And, you know, I really appreciate everything that you've done, Dan. I think that this is very uh, a courageous step for Wizards and for Magic and for R&D as a whole. I, You know, things don't seem to go smoothly, but it is appropriate in its timing that play design was announced and play design has come together and that there's such a need for it. So, I think that you have a great team. I'm very much looking forward to it. The community is incredibly excited and very much looking forward to it because I think that you're taking a step. And it, it is, like you said, it's a vast challenge. Right. Yes. The the support of the community thus far has been overwhelming. Um, you know, we know that there's tough times can happen in Magic. And um, of course, that can be incredibly frustrating, particularly if you love the game as much as we do. But we, we are really looking to the future and the type of fantastic experiences that we can create. And we, we do truly believe that Magic is the greatest game ever and that this is a great step to, you know, making it even, even greater. Great. Okay, everyone, we'll have more from Dan coming up. But first, we're going to take a quick break from a word of, from our sponsors. This episode of Kitchen Table Magic was brought to you by Paragon City Games. The Kitchen Table Magic podcast has been all about the origins of the game and members of the community. And as a community, we've come a long way since the game first started. Apart from the kitchen table, the only other places in your local community to play Magic are at local game stores. And that's why places like Paragon City Games is so important for our community. At Paragon City Games, you'll find a spacious and clean showroom with lots of elbow room for Magic events. You'll find thoughtful accessories like die-hard metal dice and handcrafted wooden boxes. You'll find a huge supply of legacy, modern, and standard staples, sealed product, and tabletop games. It's places like Paragon City Games that allow local communities to gather in. And if you can't make it there in person, please be sure to watch their weekly stream at twitch.tv slash paragoncitygames. Remember to spread the love with a like on Facebook and a follow on Twitter for Paragon City Games. They also have great online reviews and that shows their commitment to excellent customer service for their player community. This episode of Kitchen Table Magic is brought to you by Card Kingdom. Cardkingdom.com is a great place to shop for Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, pre-constructed decks, and gaming accessories. They have a huge selection of singles from the latest sets to an ever-flowing supply of modern and legacy staples. 
Card Kingdom also loves to buy Magic cards. They'll offer you cash or in-store credit for your Magic singles. And if you're new to Magic, you'll love playing any one of the 36 new pre-constructed battle decks built by Card Kingdom. Sign up for Card Kingdom's email newsletter to receive coupon codes and deck techs by Magic Pro Chris Van Meter. You'll get access to Card Kingdom's private reserve, which are special deals for chase rares at significantly discounted prices. Card Kingdom has so much to offer, so I hope you'll check them out. And if you'd like to support Kitchen Table Magic when shopping at Card Kingdom, please use our affiliate link. Just go to cardkingdom.com KTM. Hey listeners, I'm excited for a special Patreon supporters gift from Dan Burdick. I have copies of Felidar Guardian signed by Dan Burdick. It's a little funny, it's a little troll, and it's Dan's way of telling the magic community that R&D owns up to its mistakes and is looking forward to the bright future with play design. Patreon supporters at the $6 level and higher get gifts like this from my guests. Head on over to patreon.com slash kitchen table magic and become a supporter. Hurry, because quantities are limited. Okay, and we're back. Dan, I have some rapid fire questions for you. Are you ready? All right. Okay. Dan, of the five colors of magic, white, blue, black, red, and green, which is your favorite color and why? Uh, definitely green. I grew up on a lake in the forest, so I have kind of a connection with you know, some of the themes of green. Um, and also, I just love ramping into huge monsters. I love it. Okay, <laughs> great. Giant monsters. Wonderful. And if you could pair green with another color identity, what would you pair it with? Ooh, great question. Either um, a guild or a shard or a clan? Yeah. I think that uh, black, yeah, Golgari is, is definitely me. Mm. Yeah, it kind of suggests the dark side that I, <laughs> until I got that question, I, I didn't realize I had. I love it. <laughs> wonderful. 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 Dan, question number two. If you could change something about Magic the Gathering, what would it be? Uh, that's an awesome question. Uh, so, of course, have thought about that type of thing a lot, you know, as a player. <laughs> and as your position. <laughs> over the past 20 years. And yeah, and now now I'm in a position to uh, answer that question. Um, I think the thing that I would change is making Magic serve more people uh, in an organized way. I think the Pro Tour and our organized play system is is truly great and has turned magic into, you know, worldwide cultural phenomenon. But I'm really excited about potentially reaching out to more types of players with the types of things that we offer from an organized play perspective. But that that isn't necessarily my department, to be clear. Mm -hmm. um, but just speaking personally, I, I love the idea of, you know, bringing more old school people back or new people that can get into the game and in ways that um, aren't based around competitive tournaments. Okay, very cool. Question number three. If you could give something to every Magic player, what would it be? Oh my gosh. Probably, this is kind of like a sideways way of answering it, but that joy of making a deck that is truly your own and then taking it and pulling off, you know, the exact thing that you built the deck to do. That satisfaction, you know, uh, of course, a lot of Magic players have experienced that, but that's one of the best feelings in the world. And, um, you know, what got me hooked from, from age 14 was, you know, I think I built a deck with Time Elemental and Nether Void. And <laughs> just, so that's sort of like a trolley way of, um, for people who aren't familiar with those cards from 1995, they're, it's a way of locking out your opponent so they can't possibly do anything. Tons of fun. Uh, <laughs> so even though that was a bit of a trolley uh, deck, just the feeling of like, oh my gosh, I did something and it actually worked uh, is just something that uh, I hope every Magic player gets to experience. Yeah, cool. 
Dan, question number four. What do you see in the future of Magic the Gathering? Uh, I see us being a huge force in the digital space. I see Magic being something that is enjoyed by people who aren't as heavily invested in the actual play of it. Um, from an esports perspective, yeah, I see Magic becoming more of a household name in terms of people's familiarity with it as a game, um, rather than it being, you know, while of course it has a huge worldwide audience, uh, most people aren't necessarily clued into, you know, exactly how it's played or or what the culture is around it. Um, I see that changing in in a positive way. Mm-hmm. Okay. And last, Dan, do you have anything to say to the Magic community? Any asks or requests of the listening audience? Wow. Uh, great question. What do I want to say to the Magic Yeah. The entire Magic community? Yeah. <laughs> My biggest ask is, what are the things that bring you the most joy about Magic? Trying to figure out how to articulate what it is that will inspire people and you know, bring them the joy that got them into magic in the first place. While, you know, all feedback that we receive is super valuable. You know, frustration is is just as useful to know about as, you know, th- things that people like. Really trying to drill down into what can we do that is going to, you know, give you that awesome feeling that you had the first time you saw a Shivan Dragon or a Nightmare or like these. It's obviously showing my old school <laughs> <laughs> roots, but, you know, that, that type of feeling where you saw Bainsley and Drill or, or some combo card that you're like, oh my gosh, can this game do this? You know, wh- what are the things that inspire you as a player? What is it that you feel is missing, you know? Not just what are the mistakes we were making, though, of course, we want to correct for those as well. But, you know, what, what is missing from your experience? And those are the things that I truly crave to know. Dan, thanks so much. I really appreciate your time sitting down with me, answering all of these questions. The community is incredibly excited. I pulled a lot of people from the Magic subreddit, as well as uh, Magic Facebook groups and things like that. And so, I got a lot of great feedback. So, I just wanted to thank you and also acknowledge you. you what you have as um, a job right now is incredibly challenging. And I, <laughs> I recognize that. And I really hope the community also understands that. This is an comp- incredibly complex game. There's a lot of new things being done. And from what it sounds like, Dan, you you and your play design team are you're trying to make everyone happy and so i i know that there's going to be bumps uh, you know it, it, that's that's normal and that's natural of the process but i just wanted to acknowledge you i wanted to thank you for your contributions i wanted to thank you for your intellect and courage and also persistence in helping us refine this game that we all incredibly love so thank you for that that's really wonderful you to say we really appreciate the encouragement um and we're going to work very hard to um achieve these lofty goals that we've put in front of us that said we of course uh want to be held accountable for uh, all the decisions that we make Uh, it means a lot to hear you say that thanks so much great and i will have links in the show notes to dan's articles about the play design team on kitchentablemagic.org and also new patreon supporters might have access to a signed felidar guardian from dan (laughs) (laughs) yes we own our mistakes here all right thanks so much tim Well, there you have it, my conversation with Dan Burdick of PlayDesign. Many prominent members of PlayDesign can be found on Twitter. So tweet at Melissa DeTora, Paul Chion, Michael Majors, and Andrew Brown if you want to get in touch with them and give them your feedback. You can also connect with the PlayDesign team at events. PlayDesign is eager to make magic better, so they're doing a lot to keep an eye on the magic community. I'll have all of the links in the show notes at kitchentablemagic.org. 
Thanks everyone for listening to this week's show. I would like to thank all of my Patreon supporters, Brian, James L, Marcus, Alex, Trevor, Caitlin, Mark, Aaron M, Neil, James G, Aaron C, Jonathan, Corey, Chad, James E, Joe, Logan, Scott, The Magic Man Sam, Jesse, Ben, Nick, and Eternal Dirtles. Listeners, if you'd like to get special gifts from my guests, become a supporter at patreon.com slash kitchen table magic. Supporters at the $6 level or higher are getting a signed copy of Felidar Guardian from Dan Burdick. If you're a new listener to the show, welcome, and I hope you've had a chance to listen to past interviews in Seasons 1 and 2. Season 3 is amazing with all of the guests that I have lined up. Over the past year, I am so grateful that so many listeners have found the show, and I will continue to make content that is high quality and meaningful for the community. Your financial contribution goes to making the show better and keeping it running by paying for audio equipment, software, and server costs. Now that I've partnered with Card Kingdom, there's a new way to support the show. When you shop at Card Kingdom, just use my affiliate link cardkingdom.com slash ktm a big thank you again to all of my patreon supporters your support of kitchen table magic allows me to share stories about the amazing people in the magic the gathering community with the world whoa 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 if you like the kitchen table magic podcast by sam tang you're gonna love the new youtube channel play mtg by sam tang play mtg is an upbeat fast-paced new YouTube channel featuring deck text from the pros, learn-to-play tutorials, level-up advice, card discussion, MTG community news, and more. You'll find links to the Play MTG YouTube channel on facebook.com slash playmtg. And be sure to follow the show on Twitter at play underscore MTG. I'm looking forward to creating new video content, and I've got some cool collaborations in the works. Be sure to subscribe to Kitchen Table Magic on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Hipsters of the Coast, and mtgcast.com. Follow the show on Twitter at KTM Podcast. The show is on Facebook.com slash Kitchen Table Magic Podcast. All of the show notes are at kitchentablemagic.org. Remember to listen to past episodes and share KTM with a friend. Coming up in the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic... Everything sort of not necessarily planned out to the degree that I want it to be. I'm, I'm famously disorganized, you know. I was that kid that did the science project on the day before it was due. And I think I've carried over that attitude into uh, the way I do my YouTube channel. <laughs> but, you know, like I said, I, I wing it. But um, yeah, more or less, that's what I try to do. <laughs> it's, it's two or three, you know. Sometimes I'll throw a video in there like an opinion or a top ten or something like that. Um, when I'm trying to like work the kinks out of a deck, but three deck techs a week is what I try to get at, and you know, I think we've hit the mark <laughs> so far. You know, I just try to make sure it doesn't feel like I'm ever rushing anything out. I do a, a, a lot of work on these decks before they actually get out. Like just you know, when you see a deck get released on the channel, know that it's been in the works for at least two weeks at that point. But these, these decks do, they have a lot of work to go into them, so there's always one or two weeks at least of production that goes into a video before you actually see the finished product. I'm talking to YouTuber Dev of Strictly Better MTG. Dev specializes in deck techs and set reviews, all from the comfort of his couch. His videos also feature his cuddly feline friends, Igby, Julie, and Ziggy. Whether it's budget or competitive, Dev's got you covered with easy-to-understand yet in-depth strategy. Dev's videos are a great resource for new, casual, and competitive players. Dev joins me live from his couch, all on the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic.